you know, there are a lot of good things about this job, uh, this work that I've been doing for uh, about six and a half years now, give or take. And I could talk positively about a lot of them, but to get to the point, the one that's really relevant to this episode and what I'm about to talk about is the fact that I found that going back through works with analysis mode on, really digging into the work, tends to change my opinion on the work. And it's never guaranteed which direction. Sometimes I look at something that I didn't really like before and I find out that I actually do like it. Sometimes I look at something that I remember fondly and I think, well, this actually isn't that good. Sometimes, I've got two examples for you, sometimes I look at a work that I liked and as I'm digging through it and really analyzing script conventions, narrative beat, directorial style, presentation of combat, you know, whatever, what I find is a masterpiece, way better than I ever actually realized it was. Star Trek II and Empire Strikes Back. I know those are both movies, but in both cases, what I found was something so much better than I already knew about, you know, than I already expected. And then sometimes this happens. Let me just go ahead and say that I never walked into this expecting this to be a lamentation. Not once. Didn't even occur to me until about halfway through the episode because I have, like, as I've said so many times, I have my own little personal requirements for something to be a lamentation. But it occurs to me, if you're watching this DS9 stuff, you may not know about that. So, you know, because I've got some new viewers, I know, thanks to the TNG and DS9 stuff. Uh, and, of course, this will be going live after the Code of Honor thing. So you can go see that for a brief discussion of lamentation. But the general idea is, this is garbage. Like, lamentation is bottom of the barrel. Now... Some episodes are saved, some, some games as, as well, but episodes tend to be saved from lamentation status by having positive traits. There's, there's episodes that are just bleh, but then there's this one really good scene, or there's some good character stuff, or some of the actors do a really good job throughout it, or sometimes the directing manages to make otherwise uninteresting things seem visually appealing, or sometimes there's an undercurrent theme, or maybe a concept that helps salvage it. So, let me restress this. For me, for my rating system, or whatever the hell you want to call it, there's nothing below lamentation. This is the bottom of the barrel. And I didn't expect this episode to be one. I mean, I don't remember it fondly. In fact, as if you've been watching these as we go through this, this is the episode that made me quit Deep Space Nine the first time. This is the one. I know, big shock. When me and Mum were watching DS9 as it came out, as I've talked about before, we weren't really enthralled. And then we got to this episode, and we just quit. We just said, nope! Went back to TNG, and I think Space Above and Beyond was coming out at this point in time. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure X-Files was as well. But either way, we just left this one behind. Wouldn't come back for a while. I'll point it out when we come back. But I never realized just how bad this episode is. And it is bad. I can't even make fun of this episode properly. This isn't even so bad it's good. You know, this isn't even mockery bad. This is, what is this doing on my screen? Bad. Now, of course, as ever, this is just my opinion, my perspective, my ruminations, but uh, 
yeah, this this I, I I'm sorry. I, I hate to rehash this point. I'm honestly surprised. I'm shocked. I've never had fond memories of this episode, but wow. Let me talk about a couple of problems with it because I do. I do want to talk about this. I don't want to just say it's bad. You know me, or maybe you don't know me. Maybe you're new. But I don't like to just say, I like X, or I dislike Y, or I like Y, or I dislike X, or whatever. I like to give reasoning. So let me talk about budget, because that's what everyone comes to my show to talk about, about economics. Yeah, let's do it. So, <laughs> let's talk about how early DS9 was actually doing pretty good budget-wise compared to the show we've been discussing on Mondays, TNG. To quickly reiterate, TNG Season 1 was on such a shoestring budget that if I could be blunt, I'm amazed they pulled as good of a show as they did in TNG Season 1. I'm legitimately shocked at what they managed to do, because they had nothing. They were already poorly represented. They were already flagged to basically be a failure show. They didn't have the support of the networks. They didn't have prime, you know, prime billing or prime slots. And on top of the, all of this... So they were already, like, pretty low budget. Every now and again, their budget would get slashed again throughout Season 1. And they made that happen. Somehow, they made that happen. Now, DS9 didn't have the same type of budget issues. DS9 had what we call more typical television budget issues. Let me explain this really quick for those of you who have never heard me talk about this. Te uh, television shows get budgeted by season, not by episode. So you have this pool of money. Now this has to last you the whole season. Now it's important to note that you're told this well in advance, but this number isn't static. As I just mentioned with regards to TNG season one, occasionally the, the people funding you will say, we're going to pull it back down here. We've decided to pull it back down here. They can pull away from that budget at will. And an experienced and seasoned uh, television writer, producer, director, you know, makers, would know this. They know that problem exists, and so they will try to do one of two things usually. Either blow their budget early on to make sure they get some use out of it, or to be very, very careful with it so that by the time they get to the end of the season, they could blow it on what's usually referred to as a money shot. Uh, the idea of big space explosions. Like for sci-fi shows especially, you know, big sci-fi battles, ships flying, you know, worm, all that kind of stuff. DS9 mostly blew their budget early. Emissary was actually surprisingly expensive. And they went out of their way to design a bunch of new sets and a bunch of new things before the, before the shows even really got started. Now, that may not sound uh, like all that unusual, but remember, most shows don't do that. Again, to parallel TNG, they were building new sets throughout most of the first three seasons. And I'm not talking about alien planets. I'm talking about stuff on the Enterprise. I mean, God's sakes, 10 Forward didn't even show up until uh, season two, I think. God, I'm not even sure if it was season... Yeah, yeah, it was season two when, when 10 Forward first showed up. Just to name one example. Never mind things like the Doctor's... Uh, the, the, the Med Bay being completely reworked and all that fun stuff, right? So, DS9, obviously they didn't have all the sets built when Emissary was filmed, but they were in the process of actually building all those sets right at the beginning. Now, again, this is one of those earlier strategies I mentioned. You know, we want to blow our budget early, so that way we make sure we have had good use of the money. And to be blunt, blowing that money on sets is actually kind of brilliant. It's exactly the kind of thing I would want to do. 
uh, if I was in charge of a television show. Because those sets have a long-term value. Now we have all sorts of places and multiple different variety of places to shoot our sections set on our primary principal piece, the Enterprise or uh, Deep Space Nine itself, right? That makes sense. Any viewer is going to get a little bit bored, even if they don't notice it, if you have the same three general sets over and over and over, right? So, they did that, and then, what a shock! The networks came in and said, uh, we're going to pull your budget down a little bit. So, now, having blown most of that money, now that DS9, pretty much about the time this episode was being produced, suddenly found themselves very low on money. And this was supposed to be one of their money shot episodes. It was designed to be. The whole point was they were going to go into this big game, like this big massive chessboard. They were going to have a custom set and then uh, add on some green screen and, and, and digital effects to augment that and have this distance of the, you know, this kind of warped dream thing. I've seen some of the sketches. It's great stuff, actually. And of course, none of that could happen. Instead, what we have is the same basic set repeated over and over. They basically had the one little set. It wasn't even actually a set. I sh I'm, I'm actually using an extensive term. I shouldn't. What they had was a couple of walls and some and floor and ceiling bits that they kind of put together to be modular. And so they would be like, all right, corridor, all right, T-junction, all right, you know, uh, what do they call it, cross-junction or whatever, crossway, crossroads, there we go, God, crossroads, you know. They just kind of kept rejiggering it around to make use of it. So credit where credit is due, but it kind of shows, doesn't it? And I want you to remember that point about repetition. It'll be important later, trust me. So we've got this mess, just this mess of how we cannot spend any money on the actual effects that the episode basically demanded. So what do we do? Well, we go forward with the episode and we make do it what we got. And I want to give credit to the director's, and to basically the set designers and the graphics effects people and all the people who were in charge of trying to make the episode actually happen. I know this this sounds like you know praise and therefore should disqualify it for lamentation. It doesn't. But I do want to give credit to these people for actually trying. Here's where this really becomes a problem. And I I, I I'm gonna I want to explain this so specifically, and I'm gonna fail at this. When you have a truly powerful, great script, that script will shine, even if it doesn't have the flashy effects behind it. That's the point I want to make. Because this is science fiction, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure this is. We've kind of gotten used to the idea of spectacle. There's no shame in it. There's nothing necessarily wrong with spectacle, as long as it's used well. You know... As weird as this may sound, you know, ships, laser beams, and robots, and aliens, that stuff's expensive. Compared to, say, doing, uh, like, a show about a family in, in, in the 80s. You know, that's, that's a joke, cost-wise, compared to making a science fiction show. This is true for movies as well, by the way. Movies have the exact same problem. Um, spectacle effects, both practical and cinematography, uh, not cinematography, excuse me, uh, CGI, are pretty much mandatory, and kind of always have been. I mean, you go even back to all the way to the old stuff, there's still the special effects thing, that's still one of the major focuses of so many of those old films and those old TV shows. 
It certainly doesn't look like that nowadays, but if you take it in the mentality of this is the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, you can see where they're coming from. So, nothing necessarily wrong with that. But one thing that's kind of happened in the last, I'd say, 20 years, this isn't a really new problem, is certain science fiction works, most notably movies, but certain science fiction works in general, have kind of been attached to the spectacle thing. And so a lot of these movies have come out. And while they're fun to watch and they've got the big flashy effects, if you took those effects away, you would have a decisively bad movie. I bet, I, I bet a lot of you right now can think of plenty of movies that fill that gap right now because they had a weak script. Nobody really spent the time and the effort and got someone who really knew their craft to work on that script or to massage that script or to doctor that script. I mean, script doctors are a real thing, you know. Script editors are a real thing. And turn it into something good. Instead, it's just... Eh, it's to get from point A to point B and have some kind of a story that's being told while the set pieces carry, the, carry it forward. That's what this episode was supposed to be. And this episode shows so clearly what happens when those effects are taken away. Because all we're left with is a bad script. Now, granted, I can't give a huge amount of praise to most of the actors involved. No offense. But it's not like, you know, I can't say, well, Patrick Stewart is usually an amazing actor or whatever. Most of the actors involved in this episode are at least good. You know, I've talked about that. You know, Alexander Siddig knows his craft and can actually do some decent stuff. Terry Farrell is still getting, getting worked. Uh, Ter Terry Farrell? Whatever. She's still getting work uh, done. She's still getting experience. But, you know, she's starting to get her craft. Avery Brooks throws himself into his role. Of course, Armin Shimmerman has, has been pretty fantastic as Quark. You know, blah, 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 right? But they can't salvage this. And, and my point I'm actually trying to make is I don't think even a really good acting cast, like truly top-notch grade-A actors, could salvage this. Because the script is just weak and bad. Yes, both. That brings me to my next point. I haven't had to look my notes yet. So, <sighs> by total happenstance, very recently... Uh, I have decided to really start digging into improving my own writing. Uh, partially because I want to, because I want to be a better writer. It's, it's something that is a passion of mine. And partially to help me with the show, to understand writing as a very medium, as a very concept better. You know, and one of the biggest things I've been trying to do is what I advise so many other people to do. Identify your shortcomings and try to shore those up. Try to get better at what you're bad at. You know, there's certain things I have, I have, you know, self-confidence that I can write fairly well. What I want to do is try to write the things I can't write very well better. One of those things is dialogue. Now, a lot of people struggle with dialogue, and it's obvious why. It, it's, it's been said before, dialogue's one of the hardest things to write when it comes to fiction. Because it has to hit exactly the right balance of fake while being realistic. Because we all know real people generally don't talk like they do in fiction, but we kind of accept that so long as they don't go too far the other direction. One of the things I've called out countless times in real life and in my show is the as-you-know concept, which is just, just some of the worst writing that's possible. But there's more subtle aspects of writing dialogue that, can, uh, that need to be addressed. And one of the biggest ones is repetition. Repetition is, uh, is repetitious. It's all about misuse of recurrent themes, 
misuse of recurrent words, and excess repeating of information. Okay? So, I, I, I know, I, I imagine a lot of you have actually either heard of this concept or know of this concept either in your own writing or discussing in other writings or some other writer or whatever. The idea of you write like a paragraph or a page or whatever, then you go back through and you notice you used the word alone or the word great or the word very like 18 times in this page because you're just trying to, to get across that note, that tone. And so what most writers will do is they'll sit there with a thesaurus and say, okay, we'll turn this one into this word, we'll turn this one into this word, right? Because you don't want that. This script does that, not the thesaurus part, the repetition part. Way too much overuse of the same words to the point where it just kind of makes you go, huh? It's the kind of thing, uh, in my experience, maybe, maybe you're better about this, but in my experience, it's the kind of thing I don't consciously notice unless I'm thinking about it like, like I was in this episode. But it's the kind of thing that's in the background just making me go, that's not right. Like something about that's just off, you know? I just kind of notice it and flag it as, huh? It also, this episode is also bad about the repetition when it comes to things like repeating themes. I'll give you a perfect example. There's actually an episode, there's a scene in this episode, and I may actually use this scene as a way to, for, for any future classes or lessons or whatever, or, or sessions or, or panels or whatever that I ever do about writing in the future. Because this scene is what you do not do when it comes to repetition. Cisco wakes up, and he's in, uh, he's in the game or wherever the hell it is. They never really just explain that. And so he then tries to say, okay, just go to ops, okay. Uh, computer and program, computer and program, and he, 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 he tries to get out. Now, on the one level, you could say this scene is mandatory. We need to show the plight that Commander Sisko is now in. I would argue that's not true. I would argue there are far better ways to get across the same information, far quicker and far more smoothly. For example, why not cut that scene out in its entirety and have the next cutback to Sisko be about Sisko stumbling upon Bashir... As Bashir's like, oh god, I, I thought I was in a dream. And Sisko says, no, it's no dream. We're, we're trapped here or something. Boom! Exposition given. Exposition re received by us, the viewer. But instead what they do is they basically burn an entire scene on Sisko repeating himself. Both in terms of word choice and more importantly, this isn't quite a word choice thing, but more importantly the fact that he's basically just saying, let me out, let me out, let me out. Or, if you prefer, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. Like, he just keeps hitting us over the head, narratively speaking, with the same information. Nothing new is conveyed, and it just drags. I understand the irony of me pointing out repetition, by the way. I know I tend to ramble a little bit in my videos. I do apologize. It is kind of a consequence of the fact that I don't script these. I've got my notes, which, again, I haven't even uh, looked at yet. But uh, I do apologize for that. i got, I got to point that out. Speaking of my notes, though, um, let's go ahead and point out the other thing out of character before I actually really start talking about the episode. And that's the fact that originally the episode was supposed to be even stupider than it already is. Yes, really. The original intent by the author was that this was, in fact, a deadly game. Now... I've only talked to maybe five or six people about this episode in real life, you know, totally separate from the show. And 
That being said, all of them, 100% of them, all agreed that the one thing that was like the, oh, okay, like the one thing that wasn't terrible, I don't want to call it the salvaging element because it wasn't enough to redeem the episode from lamentation status. But the one thing that wasn't drek in the episode was the fact that at the end, it's just a game. It's actually kind of clever. It takes the typical science fiction trope, you know, we're caught in a terrible game, where Gorn is going ha- uh, to fight us, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And it turns it into something slightly more interesting. It never analyzes or discusses that. Never spends any time on that. And the Wadi walk away scot-free. But I'm not, I'll, I'll get to that later. But the point is, that was unintentional. That was something that I think uh, Pillar, Michael Pillar, ended up changing from the original script. So let's talk about the episode itself. I'm just going to mention something really quick. So the episode kind of starts with Cisco talking about how he needs to have a talk about girls with his son. I gotta say, if I had a son, I don't have a daughter, but if I had a son, I would never want to have the girls talk. I just, I wouldn't want to get into that. No, thank you. Let's just, let's just avoid that. But uh, I want you to remember something, because he talks about Nog, and he talks about how Nog has been te- talking to him about girls. And Jake is, and they established this in the episode, 14 years old, Pretty much when everything is going absolutely as horribly as possible when it comes to, uh, you know, growing up, teenager, uh, hormones, you know, physical changes, all that stuff. It's, it's pretty much the worst year, right? I think we can all agree. 14 was pretty much the worst year. So, that brings me in mind a question. Why is Cisco just now bringing this up? Well, that's actually an easy answer. It's because of the fact that this entire purpose of this scene is twofold. One, to establish that the, the command staff and people in charge of Deep Space Nine are idiots. I'll come back to that. And two, to try and establish that, you know, oh, I don't like my son hanging out with those types. And I hate to put it that way, but that is what it is. Nog hasn't really been established as a character yet. But I do want, and I don't really have much else to say about this, and I'm I'm not trying to get on a high horse or anything like that. I just want you to remember this as we get to certain episodes in the future, that that, uh, Cisco was so upset and so biased against Nog because he was a Ferengi, and that's that's it, that's the reason, and that he wanted his son to not hang out with him at first, and later on when he finally relented on that, to just kind of not take any information from him, seriously. Just, just, yeah, you can hang out with him, just don't communicate with him, just don't learn anything from him. God, please, just stay away from this Ferengi, oh God. So, a couple things. We have this first official contact with a race from beyond the wormhole, from within the Gamma Quadrant. Now, at least they do bother to say this is the first official contact because we've actually already had contact from beyond the wormhole. So, okay, whatever, fine. Um, First of all, that implies that this is a formal diplomatic uh, interaction, like a big meeting, right? Let Let me put this to you into slightly different terms. I know this doesn't really apply in modern world, real life, because we've all known each other for, like, hundreds of years at this point. But I want you to look at a situation. I want to look... I want you to look at uh, when when first contact was being made, or uh, not first contact, it, it's kind of the wrong way to put that. When diplomatic meetings happened between nations back in like the 1400s or the 1200s or the 800s, right? 
Now, the, what I'm saying here is that they met each other, and then they're like, oh, okay, uh, maybe we, you know, maybe we should bring tales back of these people. Okay, let's send a second group. Okay, the second group has kind of looked into this. All right, now let's do something official. You know, the first contact thing is the first time we have officially, as a government, as an organization, reached out to the other organization. Okay? Now, the point I'm trying to make is that that's the kind of thing that's planned and thought out and prep work has gone into it, and the right people are there who have training, who it's their jobs to deal with this kind of thing. And I know, we all like to joke that Starfleet's incompetent, but even though this is Season 1 DS9, this is well past other episodes of TNG. In fact, let's just point to the episode First Contact over in TNG, where we see exactly how seriously they take their First Contact protocols. Granted, that was a, uh, a pre-warp civilization. You know, it, it's a slightly different situation. But what I want you to take into mind is the amount of care, time, and attention they put into that. That was a first contact situation, and they were developing towards the point and, and examining the point of maybe we should do a more established first contact. They did research. They infiltrated. They scanned. They, they plotted. They waited. They did another mission, and then another one, and then something went wrong, and that led to the events of the episode, right? Feder the Federation gives a damn about... Excuse me, I, I have a bad habit of saying Federation and Starfleet interchangeably. I'll try to get better about that. The Federation gives a damn about these kind of meetings. And, of course, even in the episode, they go out of their way to show how Cisco cares about this and how this is a big deal to him, and he's all, he's all nervous, and he's got the dress uniform, and, oh, God, I don't know. And yet this feels like something that was put together at the last minute. I, I mean, Cisco calls out Bashir because, ha-ha, Bashir's a terrible person. I'll get to that in a second. But why haven't they had a dress rehearsal? He even says that. This isn't a dress rehearsal. Why didn't you do one? Why didn't you practice this? Why didn't you spend any time or effort on this? I mean, God's sakes, he's not even there ready to go. He has to be called and say, oh, it's time to go there, while he's talking to his son. We've got some contradictory information going on here, because this is not, let's just put this as bluntly as possible, this is not official first contact. This is, oh, hey, what's going on? What I would usually refer to as second contact. Um, you, the, first, the first actual contact is, oh, you exist. The second contact, again, going back to historical uh, medium, was usually traitors. You know, hey, so that, uh, that soft cloth you've got there, that looks really nice. Do you mind if I handle Oh, my God, this is wonderful. Do I have anything that you would take for this? You know. Get some, get some more knowledge, maybe some communication going. And then we lead to the official first contact, which is the governments reaching out to each other. This is not official first contact. I don't give a damn what the script says. This is, ah, people, all right, we're here, let's go. And yet, it continues to be contradictory to itself because they even mention how this has been set up. Uh, this is an appointed meeting and an appointed time and place that, that has been set up in advance because the Vulcans are the ones who actually found these people, and the Vulcans are the ones who already had the first and second contact, and now we're at the point of the official stage. <laughs> the script writer, I, I, I wrote down his name and then I scribbled it out because screw him. I don't, I, don't, I don't want his name remembered. He's only done two episodes of Star Trek ever, this and Sanctuary, and uh, thank God for that. 
That's all I'm gonna say. Because this, this is bad. You see, okay, okay, so, so. Next point, just while I'm on the topic. So, Julian Bashir. We gotta make fun of Julian Bashir. How many times have I talked? And I'm sure you guys may or may not have talked about this either in yourselves or online or on forums or on Discord or with your friends as you're at the movies or whatever. You've talked about, oh, it's ridiculous that such and such is happening because it's only happening because plot, right? There's no logical reason for it. And from a narrative perspective, it's only happening because the plot demands it. I know you know what I'm talking about. So... The weird thing is, what tends to irk me more is when an episode or a movie or a game tries to do something basically for the same intent, but instead of because plot, it's usually because point. Because the episode's trying to make a point. Now, in this case, the points would be, haha, look at how ridiculous and stupid Bashir is. Bashir is literally treated like a narrative punching bag in this episode. Everyone mocks him. The script itself mocks him, you know, derides him treats him like he's some moron who has no idea what he's doing and is just someone who is supposed to be pointed at and laughed. And you know what? I admittedly have a fondness for Bashir that comes from his later stuff more than his early stuff. And I will admit that even early on, he's kind of a prat. But that does not excuse the script going out of its way to basically treat him in the worst light possible just to get a cheap goddamn laugh out of it. So... Let's get to the point here. Bashir, of course, doesn't have a dress uniform. And he's like, oh god, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, and Cisco's like, I'm very upset about this because I take this seriously, and that's why I wasn't even here, and we haven't done a dress rehearsal, and we have no official anything. They have first contact in a hallway. Okay, I'm sorry. I want to make this clear. They have first contact in the hallway, right outside of the bay doors. So after Cisco makes this big deal about this, I'm just sitting here thinking, you guys have replicators, right? I mean, the normal answer would be, oh, well, it needs to be tailored to him. So the replicators don't have the ability to tailor clothes? That they don't have your measurements and can make clothing for you? That might be acceptable. Only in this case, because we know DS9 isn't exactly proper up, properly up on its technology. Because we've actually seen, again, even before now, over in TNG, where people can replicate uniforms or outfits or whatever for them. Whether it's to go on the holodeck, or to go down to a planet to interact with certain people or whatever. They know how to tailor clothing. <laughs> but no, no, he, he can't have a dress uniform. He swore he packed it. So then, God, I'm I'm like five seconds into this episode. That that, oh my God! So then, they come on board, and they interrupt the first contact protocol thing, which I'm already just rolling my eyes at, and they say, "Oh, yes, yes. Um, we were told you had games. Where do you have your games?" And then one guy leans over and whispers, and he says, "Oh yes, Quarks. Please take us to Quarks." I am amazed the episode didn't make it a point of the kind of marketing giant that Quark apparently has that people in the Gamma Quadrant have heard of him. Oh, oh, I know what you're about to point out. Oh, isn't people in the Gamma Quadrant. It's the people he's interact they've interacted with. Of course, I should have known that the Vulcans would go out of their way to talk about how, oh yes, we have Quark's bar, 
which has games over on Deep Space Nine. Now, if I'm willing to be absolutely fair, I could see that actually happening. It's still stupid. But the idea here would be that the Vulcans, who are trying to reach out to these people in whatever, you know, in some kind of actual diplomatic sense, would, would realize that they have this whole culture or center around gaming, at least that's the impression we're given, because we never hear from these people again, so who frickin' knows. Um, so, you know, we've got this whole culture centered around gaming. Maybe we should mention to them that we have games too. But of course, they're Vulcans, so why would they talk about anything logical or reasonable instead just point to a frickin' Ferengi's bar, the local outpost? Yeah, we, we've totally got it. And name-drop him by name. Even if I'm willing to give it some credits, that's still a little bit ridiculous. I, I really was expecting this time through that there was a scene I forgot about where Quark is like, Oh my god! They've heard of me! This is great! In fact, that's actually a plot point in several future episodes, with Quark trying to reach out to the Gamma Quadrant. So then, so then, there's one scene which was unintentionally engaging. Now, again, this doesn't save this episode from lamentation status, because I almost bet you that this was done completely by accident. Because I know Michael Pillar and his writing style, and Mr. I'm not going to say his name, but he doesn't. Mr. His name has been forgotten. Who wrote this episode doesn't deserve the credit for this otherwise pile of drivel. But there's a scene where Quark, you know, Cisco is like, "I want this to go very well," and then Quark says, "Don't worry, I want the same thing. I'm a host. The longer they're here, the happier they are. The more money they spend." You and me are saying the same thing, and Cisco says, "I don't think so because I hate Ferengi," and yet Quark's actually completely right. Think about it. Think about it. What does the Federation want when it comes to other new species? They want them to stay, to interact with them more, to be happy. They want to please them. They want to make sure that they have good relations with them, good diplomatic ties. Ideally, the Federation wants a new member, too, but that's, that's further down the line. Because what the Federation wants is for them to stay and be happy so that they will share the fruits and benefits and wealth of their people. Sometimes that's in case of resources, because there are resources that are still needed in the Federation. And sometimes that's in the case of knowledge, or sometimes it's in the case of culture, sometimes it's in the case of people, you know, having a new group of people, having a new species as part of our community. Now, I'm saying it this way to try and showcase how obviously the Federation is the better example of this because it's not motivated solely by greed, but it's still true. It's an apt comparison. And again, I don't think that was done on purpose at all. So, then Cork's an idiot. I'm going to take a moment here. Some people have speculated that Fallow, which is the name of the head Wadi guy, was trying to take Cork for a fool, you know, trying to con the con man. Um, I don't believe that, first of all. Let me just start with that. Nothing else in his presentation, in the entire episode, indicates that he has that sort of mentality. That sort of conniving, I'm going to manipulate you and trick you kind of a thing. Second point, he actively gets upset when he's cheated. Now, granted, you could argue that's not a valid point, but that brings to me in mind my third point. Trying to present this as if Fallow is trying to give these wonderful gifts as possible barter or, or gambling currency or whatever without 
and 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 doing trying to do so with worthless stuff <sighs> god i can't even properly phrase this it's so stupid it's one of those things where you can't have it both ways like either fallow is actually that devious and actually that self-interested and actually gets away with it scot free which usually is in contradiction with narrative law um, you know, karmic, avoiding the karmic retribution kind of a thing. But in addition to this, he also has several points of his character which, as I've mentioned, kind of go contrary to that. Oh, and that also, from a narrative perspective, is trying to showcase Quark as a savvy businessman when the entire rest of the episode presents him as an idiot businessman. Also, the, the Wadi basically have magic. We'll cover that more in a minute, but my overall point here is the strongest argument I've ever seen to ignore this one scene stupidity is that Wadi is a con man, and then, okay, fine, you can have these stupid gems. Side note, I know that the episode was kind of having budget issues. I already talked about that, but if I was to walk into Walmart, go down to the crafting aisle, and get a little bag of those gems that you can get, you know, to put in vases or to decorate with, you know, in the crafting aisle, Three bucks, maybe. Not that much money. And I think that's actually what they did. Because that's exactly what those stones look like. I don't, I'm not talking about the, the uniform ones. I'm talking about the ones where you just get a bag of random rocks and gemstones. You, you probably know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, well, I just wanted to comment on that because I laugh every time I see it. We've also got these gemstones. And it's like, oh, God, those are gemstones. That's trash. I could literally throw that away, and it would it would affect no one. But anyways, anyways. So let's uh, let's assume for a moment that we are not willing to give this episode the benefit of the doubt, which, as I think we've addressed, we're not. So, why is Cork a goddamn idiot? I want you to picture something. I want you to picture an alien race you have never encountered before and you know nothing about. Offers you these sticks, okay? Now, they're obviously carved. They're not just sticks. And, you know, he, he does so in a way that's like, these are valuable. Okay? And you say, nope, what next? Now, even if we are willing to give this episode some credits, which we are not, I want to restress, but even if we are willing to give this episode some credits, he still should actually establish if these sticks are actually worthwhile rather than just automatically assume that they are not, which is what he does. Forgive me, I'm drying out. I've been ranting so much here. Forgive me. Instead, he just says, nope, next. I got enough sticks. What if those sticks were legitimately valuable? What if those sticks had cultural significance or, or some kind of uh, personal significance or were favor traders. I, I have actually designed a couple of currencies in my time, in my fictional works, and one of those is a concept, it basically is basically a little stick, a little more fanciful in design, which means this is worth one service. You know, I turn this into you and you, owe, you basically owe me a favor. You know, you have to do something for me now. Think about how valuable that kind of a thing could be for Quark. Someone in the Gamma Quadrant that he could just take this to and say, all right, I want to know where your population centers are for trade, or where your crossway, cross hubs are, or where people would set up for gambling. You know, the ability to just have that kind of knowledge at hand because he had these sticks. Or maybe they're just valuable because there's something wrong with them. Somewhat recently, there was a coin 
that was misprinted. It was a two-pence coin. I forget the specifics. And it's worth 2,500 pounds now. Think about that for a second. And I'm using this example because the point is value is not tied to gold and silver. You know, not all treasure's gold, mate, to, 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 part, to, to borrow the quote. So the idea that Quark would immediately and instantly dismiss these things as completely worthless and valueless is so stupid that for a second I thought maybe I was looking at the wrong character on my screen. Then he offers this nectar. Now, this is worse. The sticks thing is bad. But the nectar is worse because he dismisses it and actually calls it worthless. You know, the one man's priceless and another man's worthless, which, by the way, is a really crap line, but moving on. It's the kind of line that tries to sound smart and ends up sounding stupid, but anyways. So, he's got this nectar, and he dismisses it. Do you know why he dismisses it? Because he doesn't like the taste of it. You know what I don't like the taste of? Alcohol. You know it's expensive? There's a, when I was in Vegas last time, I have family in Vegas, uh, visiting my grandparents. We went out to get some alcohol. I went out with, uh, with my aunt and my cousin to go get some alcohol for the party we were going to have that night. We went to a nice place, a uh, nice liquor barn kind of a thing. And we we're just perusing. I didn't, of course, want anything. But there's this one little, like, crystalline uh, Fabergé egg-type thing filled with, I don't remember, I think it was vodka, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Filled with some kind of alcohol, okay? Now, obviously, you get to keep the Fabergé egg, but the alcohol inside was also quite valuable. In fact, they actually gave you another, uh, I guess, carafe is the word I'm looking for? A big old thing of the alcohol to go with the, the original thing. So you actually got plenty of the liquid, liquid not just the presentation of it. That was worth several thousand dollars. I forget the amount. Forgive me. This is a couple years ago. Several thousand dollars for a drink that I couldn't stand, that I would probably spit out if I drank it. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think I am so stupid as to assume that something that I don't like the taste of is worthless? Because that's what the episode wants you to think Quark is. Now, granted, we haven't done a lot to establish Quark yet. But at the same time, I still think I could say with relative certainty that as of even this point in time, even if we're to be as absolutely fair as possible, I cannot see the Quark that we have had established for the past nine episodes be this dismissive about something because he doesn't like the taste of it. He does understand what a modicum of trade is, right? Don't worry. The episode's going to spit on Quark later, too. Oh, my God. So, then something happens which is stupid. Now, dear viewers, uh, you may not know this, but I take my job pretty damn seriously. Uh, I, if I find something that I'm not sure of, I'll, I will go and try to research it. Uh, obviously, I have access to the Internet. I also have all my old magazines, uh, the inter old interviews. I've got a few tapes that I can look at. You know, I, I try to get as much information as I possibly can. doesn't mean I always catch everything. I'll be honest with that. But my point is, I spent some time researching Dabo to make a point 
about one throwaway element of this episode, just because it bothered me that much. And because, you know, I do diligence, right? I do try. I don't always succeed, but I do try. So the Wadi are just winning at Dabo over and over and over. In fact, they basically win every round, as the episode indicates. They only start losing when Cork literally starts cheating. So, why? And, for that matter, how? This is actually something that Star Trek has a bad history of. It'll basically say, oh, well, this character is super smart, or this character, in, in this case, is very good at games. You know, they've got this whole cultural obsession with gaming, so obviously they're just really good at all games. And they treat it like a superpower. Like, straight out of DC Comics or Marvel Comics or, or Dark Horse Comics, if you want to be really inclusive here. You know, they just treat it straight like a superpower. Not the kind that makes sense. The kind that basically follows a rule. I'm good at games. This is a game. I'm good at this. Period. Dabo, and here's the fruits of my research. I spent some time on this. Dabo is roulette. That's it. God almighty, I really tried. I tried to find more information on it. I really did. It's just roulette. You, you, you bet on where it's going to land. You spin the wheel. Then it lands somewhere. There's no skill. There's, there's, you don't even give me that stupid odds. That's another thing Hollywood doesn't understand. Hollywood has sometimes presented people who can do statistics in their heads or knows the odds. I mean, it, it, Casino Royale in TNG did this exact same goddamn thing. Excuse me, I'm, I'm actually really upset about this episode. I, I apologize for my language. Casino Royale did the same damn thing, where it it treated Data's ability to be super good with the odds as a superpower that meant he could just win at scraps, or, or not scraps, excuse me, uh, craps, or he could just win at craps. Knowing the odds doesn't make you win. That's not a superpower. It doesn't mean you just suddenly got to slant those odds in your favor. It just means you know the probability. I mean, there's even an entire fallacy designed around this concept. It's called the gambler's fallacy. Look it up sometime if you feel like. I'm not going to cover it here. So, so somehow, these guys who are super good at gambling, excuse me, gaming, just win perfectly at roulette. Now I'm going to talk about how the Wadi are magic. And I'm going to explain that. I'm really going to dig into this one. Because this is probably the thing that, as a world builder, as a writer, upsets me the most. Even more than the rep rep repetitious dialogue, excuse me, as I stutter here. Even more than the repetitious dialogue, which I've already pointed out. I'm not going to bring it up again, because that's actually one of the next scenes. The magic, I'm sorry, i got to say this right. Magic that the Wadi show actually pisses me off. No thought or effort is made into showing how it works, or why it works, it just does. It just works. Accept it. The closest thing we get at all is that it's kind of like a transporter, and that's it. It's the closest thing we get. A magic transporter, where he opens a box, and the Dabo table, instantly and without hesitation, is transmuted into a completely different object. Which, when he closes the box, transmutes right back. And there are several examples of this basically magic approach to the Wadi's technology. 
Like, I'll buy that they're super into games, but this is just ridiculous. There's a bit later, just a bit later, where they're like, all right, let's put the pieces on the board. So this game, whatever, just somehow magically selects four people from an entire space station, including their own people, I might add, and decides these are going to be our players in our game. And we're going to teleport them so seamlessly, and this, the episode bothers to show us this. Cisco is in bed under the covers, and Bothers is in the middle of rolling over from one side to the other, and in mid-roll, he's transported. Now, I point that out. This is important, okay? Because that means there was no sensation of transportation. And, thanks to TNG and some other bits, we do know that there is a feeling of being transported, right? It's not like the kind of thing where it's like, zoop, and it's gone, and you're done, right? Granted, I will also admit TNG is a little inconsistent about that because occasionally people can actually talk while being transported, which is incredibly nonsensical, but whatever. Looking at you, Loxana. So, he's in mid-roll, instantly teleported, and he's no longer in bed, covers are gone, he's, he's in uniform, he's even got a tricorder, and his comm badge, which still works, by the way. Oh, and the tricorder still works, except apparently it only works for like a 10 feet radius because they can't scan anything worth a damn. No mention is ever made. I kept waiting for them to be like, I can't scan anything from 50 feet out because by all accounts they're in, oh, uh, there's a term for it, like, like a central treadmill or whatever the hell that's called. Or in other words, the person never moves. Like the terrain moves under them to give them the sensation that they're moving, but they're actually just staying in one spot. Like, it's one of the few things the episode is consistent about. Whatever happens, happens because the game moves forward. They're not actually advancing. Anyways, so they've got the trackers, and it's just, plaw, and then they're there. And it's like, what? And then, of course, they're not on the station. That's important. They're, they've left the station. No warning goes up about that for someone to just randomly vanish, for people to just randomly vanish from the station. You'd think there'd be some kind of security net or sensor or even protocol to deal with the fact that all of a sudden four life signs just, all of a sudden. I mean, even ignoring the possibility of external threat or some kind of, like, accident or malfunction, just think about the basic problem of what if there was something wrong with the station? As in, like, Maybe a hull breach of some kind that it apparently can't deal with. Or maybe someone tripped in a bad location and ended up in a plasma vent. No, 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 we've got nothing to track that. Just, yeah, everything's fine. Oh, while I'm talking about the Wadi's magic technology, I can't even say it with the right enthusiasm, forgive me. Let's also talk about the fact that later on, Odo and Primen both figure out, okay, there's something going on the Wadi ship. Let's go! All right. All right. Oh, nope, he's back in Quark's bar. Just, just like that. The guy even knows about it. And while I'm on the subject, how the hell does time work here? I know that's a weird thing to bring up, but... Oh, Cisco was in bed. So was Bashir, actually. Both characters are established as having been sleeping before being teleported here. So it was night. You know, local night. And we know that the party was going on all night, right? And we know that it's next morning before they're finally done setting up. So at an absolute bare minimum, we're talking about an hour. And that's being really generous. That they're just stuck in this maze doing whatever. Oh, and an hour of setting up the goddamn board. Okay, I've played some really complicated board games in my time. I've played Imperial. Okay? I've played Eldritch Horror. I've played some really complicated board games. It does not take hour, and that's being generous, remember. It probably took closer to like three or four hours to set up this goddamn board game. 
But I digress. I could, I could keep going on this point. I really could. But let's move on. Let's move on to the next fact. So they spend several hours doing this. And yet there's several times where we, we cut to Quark. And Quark's like, all right, I want to do this. Then it cuts to them. And they spend several minutes doing whatever. And then it cuts back to Quark and Fallow. And they're like, oh, this happened. Oh, cool. Now, I point this out because this is important. I have a feeling that this script or this director or both, and I don't want to disparage the director, don't understand what visual storytelling is. Because there's only two possibilities here. Either time is going differently in the game, or what happens every time that happens is Cork is just... So, how are things? How's the wife and kids? Do you have wife and kids? Is that a thing your culture has? No. Why are we waiting? Just wondering. Nothing? Okay. Um, you want a drink? I can get something from the bar real quick. No? Okay. For, and I'm only, I only did that for like 20 seconds. Imagine doing that for like five minutes at a time. Okay? But there's no indication of that. And that's the important part. This is why I bring up the visual storytelling. You could have like visual shorthand for information. You could cut back to them and have them like in mid-conversation. Or maybe Quark looks really bored. Or maybe he's like, can we get on with this? You know, and then, ah, you know, finally, we find out what happened. But none of that information is conveyed. So the essence of it, the, the impression of it that I am left with is that all this stuff in the game is being time-distended in addition to the fact that it's happening in frickin' fairyland and God knows where while this whole episode is happening, okay? So now that I think I've established my point on that, now I want you to consider the fact that they're in this time-distended land. Is that variable? Or is it always they? it takes them longer for real life? Because, again, they go through several minutes of actions, and by all accounts, only a few seconds pass in the real world. So, if we take this to its logical conclusion... How long were they roaming those corridors, doing basically nothing, while they spent hours in real time setting up that board? Now again, if I was willing to be fair, which I'm not, it would be possible to say that the, the, they were only roaming the corridors for like a few seconds while they set up the board, because they could basically affect the time dilation effect. And then it's like, okay, now that now we need them to, to to pass this thing, crank it back up again so they can pass it as quickly as possible. You know, basically hitting the fast-forward button. Okay, there we go. We're good. They passed the test. You win, Quark. Yay, I won. I'm getting the hang of this, even though Quark wasn't doing anything. Ugh. So I got another question for you. How is this a game? I know that this argument could be leveled at many things. So forgive me. I don't want to call anyone out for your particular form of entertainment. That's not my goal. That's not my attempt. But this isn't a game in my book. This is roll the dice every now and again and have no idea what's happening, and then you win or lose based on things that are literally out of your control. Remember, Cork loses this game for nothing. He doesn't do anything to lose this. They do something in the game that causes him to lose out of the game. That's just gambling on horses at that point, you know? I have a hard time really defining that as a game. In fact, if I was to parallel to something in real life, I'd call it roulette! <laughs> because it's just, alright, I think that'll happen. 
roll them. You know? <laughs> so, okay, okay. I'm sorry, I'm just, I, I, I gotta take a moment here. So Julian tries to wake up. There's so many things wrong with this episode, I, forgive me. I'm only halfway through my notes. Julian tr starts to wake up. And he's like, ah, ah. Now, of course, this is the plot trying to make fun of him. Ha ha, look how stupid he is. Cisco even makes a jab at him at the end of that episode. What a great commanding officer. Uh, just don't worry. <laughs> All you have to do is start yelling again if we need to find you. And he just gives him this look. Like, I'm sorry, what? Now, first of all, let me just go ahead and say that as I've been doing throughout DS9, I don't think this is compatible with later Bashir, with, with genetic Bashir. I, don't, I cannot picture genetically engineered Bashir doing anything that he does in this episode. Let's, let's just get that out of the way and move on. But the next thing I want to talk about is, why does he consider this a nightmare? Twice he calls this a nightmare, and once he calls it a bad dream. He's in a corridor. That's it. There's no condemnation. You know, there's no horrible feelings or death lights or targs rolling down the corridor or, or post-ganglionic fibers attacking him from the distance or whatever the hell. No, he's just hanging out there. Why is this a nightmare? Now, I know what you're saying. Oh, Lord, you're just getting pedantic. No, I'm getting specific. I am dissecting word choice in a bad script. That's what I'm doing. Because that is exactly my point. If you take just, if you pull yourself out of it for a moment and look at the bare bones, Julian is attempting to awaken himself. He fails at doing so. So he tries harder, which he fails at doing, leaving with him feeling genuinely panicked and afraid. That leads to Cisco finding him and the two discussing what's going on. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you take that idea and try to put it to paper, you need to be a little better about it than, ah, ah, oh, oh, sorry, I thought I was having a nightmare. No, you didn't. That's, I'm sorry, no, that's a lie. That is a misinformation, and frankly, it's doing a disservice to the, to the characters and to the audience who's watching it. Put some goddamn effort into your script. Sorry. Sorry. So now I want to comment on something. One of the things that was said about this episode, this is one of the things I got from Memory Alpha. Uh, forgive me. <laughs> I know Memory Alpha has some uh, reputation among Star Trek fans. But one of the things was the idea that uh, they tried to present it as if Starfleet was totally okay with this, right? Like, well, this sucks, but whatever. We're, they, I mean, they literally parallel it to being rats in a maze. And they just like, all right, well, let's accept this and move on. And then they specifically have Kira call it out because Kira is not Starfleet because they're, because they're still trying to establish that whole DS9 is not TNG thing, right? Okay, that makes sense, even though this is a TNG episode. But that makes sense. I get where they're going with that. Uh, problem. What Star Trek have these people been watching? Because every time, even in the original series, in the first episode ever made ever for Star Trek, being a rat in a cage was considered a universally bad thing that Mr. Pike spent basically all his time trying to escape. 
going back to the source. Starfleet characters or Federation characters don't find this kind of thing acceptable. And how many times has that come up in TNG? How many times? There's even an episode, I can't remember its name right now, forgive me, where Picard is kidnapped uh, with an Osakan, a woman who's actually not actually part of Starfleet, and uh, Mr. Peaceful Guy, I forget what his name is. Good actor, though. He does a good job of it. Um, and the whole episode is about them, you know, them trying to understand and figure out what's going on, and they're being experimented on. The whole point is they're being experimented on specifically to try and test them. In that episode, Picard non-stop spends his effort trying to get them out, trying to deal with the situation, take care of things, and of course, reiterating how horrible this is. At the end of the episode, spoiler alert, they go ahead and flip the tables on them and capture the aliens who are doing it to them to show them just how bad it feels. The whole overall point being that these Starfleet officers are not cool with this. This is a regularly repeating theme. <sighs> Moving on. So then Odo is actually surprisingly good with Jake. That's actually a nice little bit. I like that. That was good. Um, but then, not enough to save it from lamentation. But then we cut to Primin. Now, this is Primin's second episode uh, of two. I want to make that point. Now, I'm not saying that's related, but I'm just saying, from an in-character perspective, Primin was probably fired after this one. Because the security, the, the Starfleet security head, you know, basically second in command chief of security who, on a station, the, the entire command staff, or at least the majority of the command staff, does not show up on time for duty. Now, his excuse was, yeah, I heard there was a wild party last night. Okay, you know what? I'm with you. You know what I'm also with? Spending three seconds to verify that. No, seriously. Computer. Please locate Commander Sisko. Commander Sisko is not on this station. How many seconds was that? Feel free to time me. I could probably say it faster if I was in a hurry. I could probably say it less. Computer, please locate Commander Sisko. Commander Sisko is not on the station. There you go. Really dragged it out. That takes no effort. That takes no thought. And it's very quick. So you're telling me that this security chief, who's been a security officer for six years, by the way, they established that. Six years he's a security officer, and he doesn't even think to verify or check or back up or anything. He just automatically assumes, oh, uh, well, you know, long night, right? There are random mooks in Metal Gear Solid who are making fun of you, Primin. Jesus Christ. God. <laughs> People like him are usually the way the heroes get away with heists in movies or, or shows that are about heists, relying on incompetent guardsmen like him. He's literally a caricature, or, if you want to be less kind about it, a joke. Forgive me for being upset about this. I know Starfleet security is not exactly stellar, but this is such a basic minor thing, and so easy to verify. So, now I want to talk about something, because I've actually already kind of discussed the game itself a little bit, but this is actually the point of the episode where they finally start playing the game. Now, this is another one of those moments where I'm going to say, if I was willing to give the episode credit, which I'm not, so, 
if I was willing to give the episode credit, which I'm not, his phrase that he says to Quark might have just been meant for Quark. And the phrase I'm talking about is, you are required to learn the game as you play it. Now, I hope he just meant that to Quark, because he was probably kind of pissed at Quark, because Quark was trying to cheat him. Now, Quark backed down on that, and was willing to give that back. And, well, that you could argue about that left or right. The point is that Quark wasn't really trying to be, well, let's be blunt as possible, evil about this. He didn't really go overboard. He was just trying to cheat them. And then he was caught, and then we move on. Okay, sure, I'm with it. But the point relevant here is that, is that just a rule for Quark? Because I don't think it is. You're required to learn the game as you go. Okay. Why? Now, I can answer my own question on that. There are several games that it's better you don't know what you're walking into when you walk into it. I'm not even going to name examples, because just mentioning them might ruin the gaming experience for you. You know what, I'll, I'll give one example, because it's relatively well known. The Stanley Parable. By the way, if you haven't played Stanley Parable, I highly recommend it. I'm not going to say anything else about that, because the whole point is to walk in blind. Now, I can understand that concept. How do you maintain this? Like, even in real life, that's an issue with trying to maintain the secrecy of a particular game or movie or whatever so that you get the main point, so you get the full thrust of the purpose of the game, right? Now, I also want to make this point very clear because the Wadi haven't encountered the Federation before, not counting the Vulcans. So, how many times do you think that they can make someone else play this game without knowing its rules? Like, every time you run through this game, that's another person that's just off that list forever. Do they have dozens of games like this? Hundreds, maybe? I don't even know. But that already sounds kind of ludicrous. And, frankly, kind of ridiculous. <laughs> now I want to point out the other point I'm going to make. If the whole point of the game is that you learn as you go, so you don't understand it, I can understand that concept if it means something. Now, again, I can't actually give you specifics because I don't want to do the same thing. I don't want to ruin the Stanley Parable for you. So I'm not going to. But I'm going to say right now that the Stanley Parable is a game that you don't get the same experience out of if you know what you're walking into. And even under those circumstances, I actually sat my sister down once and had her play it just to see what her reaction would be. She picked up on what was going on almost immediately. Because one of the first things it does, and, and again, I'm not going to spoil, but you remember, there's the two doors, right? It's one of the first things. Two doors. Huh? One of the first things she did was go the other way. So, what's the point, then, of this game, Chuda, or whatever the hell it's called, not knowing what you're getting into it? Because remember, there's no real interaction. Cork does two things in this game. He rolls dice, and he occasionally decides left or right. That's it. So the rules of the game require you to learn as you go. Except, he doesn't learn anything other than roll dice and pick A or B. You see my point here? 
there could have even been something interesting, something evolving. I, 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 it would take some time to think about it, so forgive me for not spending more time on this topic, but you know, maybe some idea like the Stanley Parable where learning as you go could actually change your experience, could make you appreciate what's happening more, or change your perspective on how you're walking through it. Maybe be an insight into you as a person, or how you think, or how you approach problem solving, right? You know, like a proper rat-in-a-cage situation that's actually done in real life and not the Hollywood stereotype. But no, there's no point. There's no actual point in Cork learning as he goes. And do you know why? Because the whole point of the game was for it to seem alien. No, seriously. I've, I've, I've read the, the interview with Mr. Doesn't Deserve a Name, who wrote this episode. And the whole point of that interview was talking about, you know, the whole point of the game was alien. Cork never understands it. The audience never understands it. It was supposed to be alien. Rolling dice and choosing sides is not alien. And there's no rules. In fact, those are the rules. That's it. Remember, what's happening in the game is not in any way affecting Quark other than the fact that he sees the results of his dice or the results of his choice. In other words, there are actually no real rules other than roll dice, choose. That's it. So this isn't alien. This isn't anything. In fact, that brings me to my next point, which is why this pisses me off so much. Now, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I would say with 99% certainty of my own speculation based on the presentation of this episode and everything that went into it and the interviews I just mentioned, that the gentleman involved who actually designed this freaking game never actually designed the game. He never actually sat down and invented the game or its rules or its function or how it works. At no point in time was any thought put into that. It's just there. Stop thinking about it, damn it. And God, that pisses me off. When an episode basically just says, oh, it's alien. You're not supposed to think about it. Oh, it's, it's just different. Don't think about it. Because that's what this episode is doing. It's basically telling me not to think about it. To present something as beyond my ken. Okay, I've got dice literally right here. You see these? I know those of you listening to the MP3 can't. So here. You hear these? These are my D&D &D dice that I GM with. They're right here. I understand dice, okay? It's not that complicated. People who don't play tabletop games... I just screwed the thing. Am I still recording? I'm still recording. People who don't play tabletop games understand dice. And left or right. It's not... It's, and the, the, it's even stupider. It's even stupider than that, because it's not like he just says, choose the quicker path or choose the longer path. You know, if he had just said that, at least there might be some kind of... Oh, well, we'll see, you know, if he can think things out, or maybe he's not, you know, really analyzing his choices. He'll just choose the, the quicker path because he's not thinking. No, they say flat out, the quicker path is more dangerous, but more rewarding, and the longer path is safer and less rewarding. There's no choice at that point. That's just... <laughs> Then, the next thing that happens is they talk about the first puzzle that they're going to solve. I'll get on that in a second. That's my next topic. But right now we're talking about how uh, this writer doesn't understand narrative tropes. Because, I'm sorry to keep bashing this guy over, but this is one of the worst scripts I have ever had to analyze in my life. I'm not saying that with hyperbole. This is terrible. 
This is right up there with frickin' Amazing Spider-Man 2, which I have used as an example of what not to do in writing before. I have done that. <sighs> so, he, uh, Cork says, I don't understand. You know, we, we found the blah, 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 I forget the name, you know, the made-up thing. And Cork says, I don't understand. And the guy says, ah, that's the thing. Some people will understand, well, to others, will never understand, but to others, it is mere child's play. Now, I actually said that wrong, because the way he says it is, ah, some will never understand, but to others, it will be merely child's play. Now, if you're presenting a line like that, you are doing it because you're saying something significant. That is basically narrative shorthand from an acting perspective, usually on the behalf of the directors of the script, to specifically draw the audience's attention to the words being said. So the audience is like, aha, child's play, this is relevant. Oh, it's a hopscotch game. Th that's basically the sequence of events there. The whole point of that is that it's a clue. It is a clue, but it's a clue for the audience. Because remember, he's saying this to Quark. And remember, at this point, Quark isn't even aware of what's going on. He's looking at a couple pieces on a board. So what's the relevance of saying the clue? And I mean both in character and out of character. In character, at this point, he's just kind of being a dick, Fallow is. Because he's just saying something to Quark that he knows is irrelevant to Quark. From an out-of-character perspective, this is intended to clue the audience in on what they have to do next, which would only work if the thing that is coming up is the kind of thing where the audience is aware of some great peril that the characters are not. You know, I've talked about that concept before, right? It's one of the two types of uh, tension or horror. The audience knows, character doesn't. But the moment they walk into the next room, it's a freaking hopscotch game. It's like saying, ah, oh, yes, well, some may never understand, while others will get their Whopper with fries. And then it cuts to the next scene, and the guy's walking into a Burger King. Like, that's, that's the relative equivalent of what has happened here. And then, the puzzle! I need, I need a drink. I'm sorry, I need a drink. Mm. Don't worry, it's just water. I'm just dehydrated from ranting. I have a note right here. It's underlined four times. It just says this is not a puzzle. Because it's not. Now, let's be clear. I know it's hard to write puzzles. I really do, through personal experience. As a GM, and as a writer, I have found a tremendous difficulty in writing proper puzzles. And sometimes they're, they're, they're failures. Sometimes they're crap. They're just too easy. Sometimes they're too hard because I'm overestimating, right? Or I'm, I'm thinking too linearly, or I didn't put enough possible solutions or clues or resultants or whatever. So I understand that it's hard. I get that. That's not an excuse for being crap at it. It's just the truth. But for God's sakes, this is not a puzzle. I'm going to run this through you on the off chance that you haven't seen this episode, but more to the point, to really hammer this in. You walk into a room. There's a pattern on the floor. A young girl is going through this pattern in the exact same way, back and forth, over and over, while saying a rhyme. Same rhyme, same pattern, over and over. That's it. That's your clue. Have fun. Gosh, maybe I should do what she's doing. There's nothing else. There's no calligraphy, there's no mathematical pattern, there's no nothing. I wouldn't... I, 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 this is the kind of thing 
if they wanted to make this more of a puzzle, I, I just come up with this right now, off the top of my head. If they wanted to be at least partially clever here and tie into that earlier thing, it could be that that's the obvious solution, and the real solution is far more complicated. You know, one of those uh, analyze the information rather than analyze uh, the solution kind of a situations, right? And and maybe having them uh, looking at this like, oh God, we need to figure out the mathematical pattern of this, or how many molecules are in the air, or what what the hell ever. You know, I, again, I'd have to spend some time to really think of something because this just came to me off the top of my head. And then the actual solution is just doing the pattern because. Some will never get it, while to others it's child's play. That would at least match the previous sentence and be a little clever. But no. The answer is to follow the directions. If you walk into a room and there's a piece of paper that says, write your name on this paper while writing in cursive and standing on one foot, and you do it, guess what? That's not a puzzle. That's not a challenge. It's not a game. That's not anything. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And then Dax. Uh, okay. I like Dax as a character. You know, it, it, she's very hit or miss for me. You know, Jadzia has her moments. Ezri has her moments. But, God's sakes. What, what is wrong with her in this episode? I, I, I get the feeling that the guy who wrote this has heard of Star Trek through, like, parody and so decided to treat that as if it was the truth. You know, like like that earlier comment about Starfleet officers being totally okay about being in cages and whatnot or whatever. This is another aspect of that. He treats the quote-unquote royal smart person, you know, like Spock or Data. At, you know, in this case, it's Dax. He, they treat her like her only purpose is to dispense obvious information that anyone can know. She... <laughs> I, I can't even parody this. It's so mind-bogglingly stupid as she just sits there and talks about how, you know, the rules of a game are this, and the object of a game is to get home, and, and she just repeats stuff, which is another problem of the repetitious thing I talked about earlier. Yes, I realize that I am now getting repetitious talking about the repetitious problem. That's how repetitious it is! Ugh! So then, they get to the next puzzle. What the hell's with this next puzzle? Here's the next puzzle. You ready for this? All right, you walk into a room. There's some gas. It's hard to breathe. People are laughing while drinking. Okay, that's already really obvious, as far as I'm concerned. You know, if I was playing D&D, sitting there around the table, you know, having some... Well, I don't actually like Cheetos, but, you know, eating some carrots. That's my favorite snack food right there. Eating some carrots, you know, got some sparkling water. And the GM said, okay, you walk into a room... And immediately, you know, you, you, you start, it's, you have trouble breathing. You're, you're choking, you're coughing. The people around you are all laughing, full-throated, full-bodied laughs. And they're drinking from something. I would, be, I would just look at the GM like, because my first thought would be, okay, that's too obvious. But no, no, the solution is drink. And you know what's better than that? Because that's already stupid. What's even better than that is that at a certain point, the fallow construct, whatever the hell's up with that, I'm not even going to discuss that because that's just a whole other ball of stupid. But at some point, the fallow construct walks over and says, Drink! And then, yes, yes, it even gets stupider than this. And then they all drink. Bashir's the first one to drink. They all drink. And then they say, oh, thank God, you figured it out. And Bashir said, oh, it's just a lucky guess, actually. I just figured, what's the worst that could happen? What? 
After all the evidence you were given, including the incredibly obvious setup, and the literal, again, instruction of drink, after all that, you were just taking a lucky guess? Uh, I... Now, I wrote something down, and I did this to make a point. Uh, it's actually the opposite point of what I intended to make. It's one of the reasons I do these analyses. Sometimes things are different than what I thought they were. Because by memory, by memory in this episode, it takes them way too damn long to solve these puzzles. Like, I actually remember sitting there and being like, oh, come on, this is so obvious. Right? You know, come on, get on with it. Then, I sat down and wrote down how much time it took for them to actually solve the puzzles. And in the former case, it was 31 seconds. Now, that's not a long time, even from television terms. So, why does it feel so long? So, I went back and rewatched those 31 seconds. And those 31 seconds are filled with nothing but padding. They don't add any new information whatsoever. They repeat themselves. They say the same things over and over as they literally recite things back to each other. And then finally they do the answer. 31 seconds. Felt like a lot longer because of just how god-awful this script is. Now, here's a question for you. Why is it that everyone's just kind of cool with what the Wadi do in this episode? No, I, I can already hear you protesting. I can hear you saying, well, wait a minute. Cisco's pretty pissed about this. And Odo's pretty pissed about this. And Kira's really pissed about this. Except despite being like, rawr, none of these people take any real action showcasing how upset they are. The worst we see is Kira throws a tray on the ground. That's it. She doesn't slug anyone. She doesn't grab someone and try to take them as a hostage or physically assault someone. No attempt at reprimand is made. No idea of trying to use physical force. No anything. Everyone's just kind of cool with it. And when the Wadi leave at the end, they just kind of walk off scot-free. Why is everyone just all right with this? Anyways. So, here we go. This is the scene that almost, almost saved this episode from lamentation status. And I was fully prepared. Up till this moment, this episode was a lamentation in my mind. But I always knew this scene was coming, and I predicted, like I, I just had it in my mind, that this episode was not going to be a lamentation because this scene. It's actually two scenes. But it's a scene where, uh, where, the, where Quark and Odo realize that the four game pieces are the four characters, right? And they realize that, and then Quark's like, oh, God, you know, Odo, maybe you should take my place. <sighs> oh, God, it's actually them. And then he says, pick, and he's like, the safer path, the safer path. You know, he says it immediately, like, oh, God, I can't possibly do this, right? Now, the whole point would be this scene, by my memory, was one of the few decent moments in the episode, as Quark showed how he wasn't really a complete slimeball. But then I rewatched these scenes, and they're still bad. Because there's two things they do wrong. First of all, three things actually, excuse me. First of all, I actually like Armin Shimmerman and his acting. He does not do a good job of acting when he's begging. I want you to specifically watch that scene, if you will, please. I know some of you watch these episodes with me. 
I would like you to go and find that scene. It's it's like 30-something minutes in the episode. I forget the exact time, so I should have written it down. Uh, it would have been after... Uh, after 21-minute mark. I know that, because that's where the first puzzle was. So somewhere around there. Um, and I want you to watch his... his No, please, don't make me do it scene. That's not good acting, Shimmerman. That's actually kind of bad acting. It's hammy awkward rather than hammy enthusiastic. And, uh, that's not good. The second reason that I don't like those scenes is because Odo is like, you know, Quark is like, oh god, no, this is, this is way too serious. I can't actually hurt any people. Okay, that's, that's in character. I'm with that. The very next scene with him has him talking about the situation. And he's all excited about all these bubbles he got. Ooh, bubbles. Ooh, this is nice. And then Odo, Odo has to turn around and be like, what are you doing? You need to take the safer path. And Quark's like, oh, come on. Look at all this money I'm getting. And Odo's like, Quark. Quark goes from being Quark to suddenly turning into a typical Ferengi at the drop of a hat. Literally uh, two scenes in between each other. Uh, forgive me if I'm miscounting. I'm pretty sure there's the scene where Bashir vanishes and then the uh, the consequences scene, and then this scene. Pretty sure that's how it goes. Just, like, within a space of a couple minutes, Cork suddenly goes back to being a completely different character. Then, Cork says, all right, we've got to do the shorter path. And then Odo's like, Quark. Then Odo suddenly shifts back, or excuse me, then Quark suddenly shifts back to being Quark, except only halfway. Or, or, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying, except fully instead of halfway. Because now he's actually acting like the real Quark. It's okay, I've been paying attention to the game. I've, I've got the pattern, I've got the feel. Sometimes you got to take the risk. With one move, we can get them back. And I could win. That's Quark right there. It's the one tiny little moment of Quark in this whole episode, really. Because all of a sudden, he's po poked his face in, and he said, we could win it all. Because that is the Ferengi mindset, really. Yeah, it's greed, but it's not just avarice. And, I, and this has actually been a character trait that's been established by Quark up till now. So now you're thinking, well, why don't I give it the credit for it? Well, because here's the thing. Quark's entire purpose behind saying this is because he's been watching the game. He's got a feel for the thing, you know? Except the previous two scenes have both indicated that he's in way over his head. That he has no idea what he's doing, and that he either can't take this anymore, or thinks of people as tools to get money. Take your pick. Then, then we get to the actual begging scene. Now, I remind you that this entire time, Odo has been one of the only characters that's been treated relatively okay this whole episode. He has been pretty on top of things, pretty much immediately figured out what's going on with Jake. Was decent with Jake, like I mentioned. Uh, properly lambasted Bremen. Uh, which I can't even remember if his name was name right all of a sudden, uh, for being an idiot, tried to investigate like a good security officer should, and then ends up here, and he's the one who's trying to get them to take this seriously because clearly this is a game to the death. Because of course it's a game to the death. Because it was originally supposed to be a game to the death. <sighs> then, in a moment in which Cork is literally on his knees, under the table begging, Odo and Fallow are both directed to behave the same. Basically the, huh, like, like, look at this guy, all right? You know what I'm talking about, right? 
You've got one person who's overacting, and then you've got another character who's just reacting to their overreaction, right? And that's the, there's, a, there's probably a proper trope for that. I can't think of that. But both Odo and Fallow are just, wow, look at this guy, right? That's not Odo. That's especially not Odo in this moment. That's not even Odo in this episode. Ugh. So then, after literally begging, he says, all right, fine, fine, I won't make you sacrifice him. Actually, he says it really weirdly. He doesn't say, I won't make you choose, which is what a clever scriptwriter would have said. And Cindy doesn't say, you know, oh, Cork says, you know, I don't have to sacrifice anyone. And the guy says, yes. We'll program it to do it randomly. That is not clever. I'm sorry. That, that's not clever wordplay. In fact, that's actually cheating from a narrative perspective. So then, so then they program it to get someone... It, it, you know, I'm sorry, quick question. Who's normally in the game? This has actually been bothering me this whole time. Do they normally just kidnap random people who've never heard of this before and don't know the game at all to put into it? I mean, maybe that's the whole point of the you're not you're supposed to learn as you go kind of a thing, even though that's also stupid in that case for the reasons already addressed. I'm not repeating myself. So why... Who normally goes in here? Do they just have a bunch of Wadi whose job it is is to be game pieces? I mean, there's actually some potential for some culture building in that kind of concept. Of course, they never do, because why would we actually think about things? Let's just do things. Wee. So then they say, you know, one must be sacrificed so that two may go forward. Now, this is where the game really just completely falls apart as a game. Speaking as someone who has, who has studied game design mechanics for the better part of my entire life, let me just say that if there was an actual video game or board game or tabletop pen and paper game like this, I would want to call up that person and call them out for being incredibly stupid. This is not a game. The idea of the treat, basically you, these pieces, you know, you have to choose, right? One is sacrifice, two go forward. Now, if you're playing a board game and you make the choice, that makes sense, right? In fact, that actually kind of makes a degree of sense if that was happening. But that's not what's happening, because those aren't pieces in a board game. They're people over in Magic Fairyland, or wherever the hell they are, right? I just repeated myself. No, I just repeated a joke. Ah. So, they don't... Ha there's no control, right? You don't say, all right, Cisco... You, the, the court doesn't just show up on the, the voice and says, Cisco, Cisco and Kira, you need to leave Dax behind. No, that's not done. And nothing is communicated to the characters in the game that they need to do this. Instead, Dax is injured, so they're like, all right, let's make this work. Now, Dax makes an incredibly half-hearted attempt to be like, no, you need to leave me behind, blah, blah, blah. And we could actually argue and address the specific moralistic quandary of should you leave behind a soldier in order to save the rest of your platoon. That's a whole other topic. In fact, TNG's already covered that topic by this point in time. When, uh, at least I think it was before now. Might not be. When Troy gets her pips is what I'm talking about. But that's not the point. The point is this is a game. It's a game in which we're trying to treat actual people with no knowledge of the fact that they are running under certain rules as if they're pieces on a board. So they don't behave like pieces on a board, and Quark, of course, has no control over this situation, even if he had decided to make the choice. So they fail. 
And Quirk loses through no fault of his own. I want to stress that again. I really want to stress that point. It's basically as if Quirk said, double black. And it wasn't. That's it. There's no interaction. But he still loses. Then the episode ends. And you know what? Normally I'd be all happy. Oh, thank God the episode's over. But it ends on the stupidest possible point. I've, I've talked about this already over on TNG. One of the things early TNG had this problem with was they had to have a specific type of coda. You know what I'm talking about, right? Especially if you watch my TNG stuff, you know what I'm talking about. Where they have to have that, ha, 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 you know, ending on a laugh or ending on a lighthearted beat. You know, sometimes the music will do, da, 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 you know, to make you think that something happy happened. It's, it's basically a holdover from the original series. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's usually a bad thing because it's usually applied when it shouldn't be, my opinion. So that's how this episode ends. It was just a game. Okay, that's okay. But then, that's not how the episode ends. Because the episode keeps going for like three or four more minutes as they all kind of point and freak at the freak and laugh. Oh, ha, ha, Cork was, was groveling. Isn't that funny? Oh, this is so hilarious. And Oh, now he's thinking about setting this up long term. Oh, that's funny. As if continuity is going to be in a Star Trek. Give me a break, right? And then, oh, he's going to run after them. Oh, isn't it funny how, how Cork is so avaristic? All he cares about is money. <laughs> and it just kind of keeps dragging on and on and on until finally it ends. Ugh. I, I hate this episode. My God. This is so weird. Whoa, I just knocked over my water. That's how much I hate this episode. God damn. <laughs> as I've been going forgive me for my little denouement here but as I've been going through DS9 I have been surprised whoops, wrong button I've been surprised at how good it's been you know, like how generally high quality DS9 has been, even season 1 like there's some issues uh, here or there I think I just froze the camera, sorry. We're good, we're back, we're back. You know, there's been some issues here and there, I'm not going to lie to you about that, but overall, I've been enjoying DS9. Especially going through with analysis mode on. Like episodes that I previously thought were kind of crap, or just eh, I've actually been enjoying. Legitimately enjoying. I honestly expected to have the same situation here. I figured I'd get to this episode and I'd be like, ah, hidden depths. Or here's things I didn't even realize. Or here's little subtleties in the background. No, this episode's crap! I'm actually in shock. I'm going to repeat myself five more times. I'm in shock. 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 You see how it wears it out like that? I hate this episode. Thank you for joining me for talking about it. I'll see you next time.